Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movement Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're in Nairobi, Kenya, talking to Joey Gordy about the first stage in his journey towards multiplying movements of disciples and churches. When I was one, my parents um, became uh, full-time church planters in Ghana, Ghana, West Africa. And so uh, what's interesting about that is I just, I spent my whole childhood, my adolescence, and even into high school, um, watching my dad do that work. Um, And I was telling someone the other day, it's interesting, you know, we didn't have any of the tools back then that we have now for movement. In fact, no one was even using the, this is 1981. Didn't have any words for movement. The the DNA was there. The tools weren't quite there. Um, and so we'll just fast forward, you know, so that's my early childhood and just being, being a part of that, being, just cutting my teeth, so to speak, on the work, um, as we would say, as you would see in, and, you know, Acts chapter 13 and 14, that work. And so um, when I was, gosh, uh, I was exposed to early stages of movement. I was a, a single young missionary in China in uh, 2001, 2002. And in those days, uh, a dear brother by the name of Ying Kai was around. Uh, Steve Smith was around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got first exposure in the T4T world in those days um, as a young man. It happens to be where I met my wife. Um, we then transitioned back to the U.S. for a bit, got, got married, and ended up in India for roughly 10 years. So that exposure, obviously, the upbringing, but then T4T mm-hmm. added um, tools very specific tools, not so much at that point, gospel sharing tools, more disciple making tools and rhythms to, to, I guess, my, my knowledge and understanding of, of movement. And so in India, boy, that was in those days, uh, that was uh, 2007 when we landed in India. Um, and it was like a sandbox of movement in those days. And I don't know, I was with an organization that in in those days, our leader was David Garrison. Mm. And so (laughs) anyone familiar with his writings, you know, that's sort of where this began, where he began Mm. to uh, bring in all the ideas and the lessons learned. Um, You know, you got the elements of movement. And so just really beginning to understand worldwide at that point, and a lot of that stuff that he wrote about was happening or had happened uh, in India. And so there was a legacy of that um, through a lot of dear brothers that had been working there for many years. And of course, in, in China and other places around. And so uh, as a, I guess a young married man at that point, we had, we had one child, a baby with us, and we lived up in the mountains in Himachal Pradesh. That was uh, pretty isolated back then still probably isolated but uh just that state had roughly six million people uh the majority of whom were high caste hindu which was really interesting because most states it's a mesh and a mix of uh castes Mm -hmm. but for some reason 
mostly because of persecution and people having to flee up into the mountains. It ended up with a, a high percentage of high caste, which was just, just a really interesting cocktail for, for ministry. Very difficult work, very. And it was also where um, Hinduism and Buddhism just began to syncretize and meet. And they had for, you know, uh, maybe thousands of years, but hundreds of years at least. And so in some of those towns up in the mountains in the Himalayas, you would find uh, each community would have their Hindu temple and their Buddhist temple on the same property. And it was almost sort of like, you know, choose your religion of the day. And there were certainly those that were more devoted to one over the other, but it was it's just a strange cocktail up there. And so this would be a, a Lamaism, really, not really Buddhism, but Lamaism from Tibet. And they just revered the power structures of the Lamas. And that was it's more worship of Lamas, if I'm honest, than anything else. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Hinduism, it, you know, for some reason along the way, it became called Hinduism. Uh, you know, I think the British probably had something to do with that in, back in, in their days. But it, every village has its own belief. And what's strange is every village has their own uh, gods. Mm-hmm. And usually there's a male and a female god. The encouragement I received from those mentors was to try and find any like-minded believers in the state where I lived and cast vision for them and then offer training and then begin working together with anyone who was interested so the problem with that steve was i mentioned the spiritual context there weren't very many they Mm. just weren't and so like we in the town i lived in there was probably two or three actual churches that had buildings um and then across the, the entire state there weren't many at all. Uh, just unless the British left them behind, there weren't any. And so everything was moved underground, mm. high persecution context. So we we spent a lot of time praying, how are we going to find partners in a place where there's no open, no real open Christian presence? Mm. Uh, how does this work? So uh, a lot of time praying, just really asking Jesus to give us give us the answer to that question. So not knowing what to do, I began visiting churches, whatever I could find on Sundays. There's a little Baptist church in the town, I mean, little, you know, like 20 people meeting. There was the Anglican church. Um, and just like little things like that happening. I would visit them uh, on Sunday mornings because that's when they meet. And uh, I would just kind of have tea with anyone who was willing and cast a little vision through that. We met, um, one or two who caught the vision. I wouldn't say one or two that were necessarily fruitful in terms of gospel sharing and disciple making, excuse me, but one or two that realized that this was something that we were presenting was maybe a little more biblical, a little more faithful to the mm-hmm. text of actually a great commission type work. And so through those one or two, we put together, they would open up networks of believers across the state. Mm. And so known to them were others, most of them, you know, in remote places and underground and in terms of meeting in churches and gathering together. And so 
that began to open up a few networks. And then I went, I felt like a traveling salesman for the first year, Steve. Uh, my wife and I and our baby and some partners would get in our four by four and we would, we drove countless days through the mountains and we would just make contact. And I would sit in people's, you know, small huts or, you know, <laughs> just small dwellings and cast vision for them. Um, any anyone who would open the door we just didn't have that many to work through so i would go to mm -hmm. anyone with a pulse who would open the door and we sat there in broken hindi you know it was the first year and we we're doing our best and no one speaks english out there so and we would cast a little vision here throw some seeds there all the way across the state and just travel it sometimes hiking into places and spending some days on, on trails uh baby on the back you know um and uh People, people caught on to some vision, a percentage, a small percentage, you know, we would cast a lot of seed, but uh, some of it took root. And so from that, we established three or four different potential training spots, locations where uh, people would come in, usually underground type stuff. You know, they would come into someone's home uh, and or a small rented building or hotel room and receive training, uh, very basic stuff back then. Just uh, at that time, we were using tools like the Romans Road, which mm. is a great tool, um, you know, and with a bridge diagram, which is a great tool. And mm. so we had people memorizing four verses in Romans to get to, you know, gospel and inviting people in, into a relationship with Jesus. And then we were using very simple uh, seven commands type stuff. I think that had kind of come over. Uh, by that point from uh, Central America. And so just really simple, basic things that we were training. We saw, um, we saw some churches start out of that. None of those early believers, we didn't lead any of them to faith. And I think that's important to note because someone had done a lot of hard work before we got there. Mm. It looked a little different, but someone had laid a foundation uh, of the gospel and people had come to faith in Jesus and had some formulation of disciple making and many times even some idea of church mm. by the time we entered the scene. And so, um, yeah, uh, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you a story. We'll call him Singh. Uh, and uh, 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 that, that pseudonym is actually really good because there's a lot of Singhs in India, but um he, so seeing when we met him, I met him, someone else was doing a conference in town. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it was actually like a prosperity gospel conference going on across town. And for some reason, I caught wind of it from another partner. You know, there weren't many believers in, in this town I lived in, not many at all. In fact, I probably knew most of them, except for this one who was hosting this conference and an American had come in and was doing some, you know, sort of prosperity type stuff. And I was interested who was going to show up. Mm. So I, you know, you've heard of wedding crashers. I was sort of a Christian conference crasher at that point. Cause I wanted to see, I wanted to put eyes on those from the town that I didn't know yet. And maybe, you know, do a little fishing and see who was interested mm. in, in disciple making. So I ended up at this place and the guy who hosted it, it was an American who came through and did the speaking. The guy who hosted it, we called Singh. Singh um, 
boy, I, I got the feeling that he was genuinely transformed by Jesus and by the gospel. You know, some people you can just kind of tell mm. uh, by the way they hold themselves, the way they speak. It, yeah. it ended up, he was, a, he was a, from a high caste Hindu background, which was rare to have a believer. They have so much to lose, as you can mm. imagine, with mm. identity, to identify with Christ. And he had received a lot of persecution as the story goes, as we get to know each other. Well, uh, I ended up inviting him to my house the following week or sometime, you know, post the event because it was someone else's show. I didn't want to be rude. Uh, that traveling evangelist or traveling prosperity gospel guy went back to the U.S. And so I ended up really focusing in on this guy and just casting vision for him, going out, sharing the gospel with him. I, I find um, I, you, you can spend a lot of time in, in India drinking tea with people pastors, Christians, evangelists, uh, but the, a shortcut to finding if they're really hungry and wanting yeah. to be faithful and making disciples is to get into the harvest with them. Mm. That's a, for me, it's a shortcut. It's just a filter. Mm. And so most of them, I wouldn't say were unwilling, but very hesitant, didn't have a practice of getting into the harvest, you know, and so just wanted to drink tea and make plans. This guy, we got into the harvest immediately. Um, and he was faithful to share and, mm. and his wife was faithful to share. And they had a, a daughter who was sharing. I mean, it was obvious the Lord was doing something. And so Sting, um, we saw several people come to faith. We saw uh, some, he had a church that was meeting underground already. Like I said, none of these guys came to faith at, from my witness, mm. um, but from others before us. And so he had a small group meeting. And so what we ended up training considerably that small group. Mm. And we saw from that small group, uh, you know, evangelism happened, disciple making happening in other communities. And then small churches begin to come out of that. And then some churches, we, we went on some training and evangelism circuits with him, with Singh in that part of, of India. And we would see small churches pop up in some of those places as well. Again, we're not talking mega movement at yeah. this point. We're talking just uh, small starts, you know, sparks, mm. embers uh, mm. of the gospel taking root in some tough communities. Um, so that's Singh. Still, he's still at it today. Wow. Um, the, the Lord is laying on our hearts, my wife and I, a deep desire for the unreached and unengaged uh, peoples of South Asia which is uh, was a lot, still a lot, unfortunately. But in those days, that's 2010, this is a lot of people. And we had a good number of them with a large population, you know, over 100,000, many of over a million. We moved to a centralized location. We moved to Delhi to kind of, kind of be in the midst of that. First of all, Delhi, you know, as a mega city, as one of the world's largest, but also as a, central influence on the whole you know country because it's the capital region people from everywhere were coming in to that city and then going out and so there was a lot more overlap with peoples especially these unengaged and then a lot more potential for partnership and vision casting um it's just a different just a different environment in delhi than it was way up isolated in the mountains so we transitioned uh, into a role within the same organization to sort of spearhead 
uh, entry points into um, those unengaged, in a sense, to to help catalyze the engagement of those peoples. But the Lord was at work already and had been at work. Mm. We we would find believers in those peoples. Uh, and the, the truth is we just didn't know they were there. So the yeah. more people we asked, the more connections we made in places like Bihar and Haryana and Rajasthan and these really uh, tough and remote areas, we would find these people. So working with a network, again, uh, how it works, you know, some people invited us for training and we said, we would love to come for training. Uh, here's the list of people groups that are unengaged. As far as we know, they have no gospel witness in Bihar. There were 17 at that point over the population of, uh, of 100,000, 17. And some of those were in the millions. So it was a large population segment. Of course, that state has 100 million. So, you know, um, so uh, we put out the list. We asked for, if you can find believers, I don't even, honestly, Steve, we were looking for believers. We were looking for as deep as we could go. But I was willing to take anyone who came from that background just so I could have an audience to share the gospel with them and, and meet mm. them and train them. Well, we ended up getting, you know, filling, let's say, 40 people trainings with five from this people group and two from that people group and one from this people group. And, you know, as we network, we found these believers or so-called believers. Um, one of those, uh, Manan, um, so... Manan was from this people that I think roughly 250,000 odd people from this, from a, a really awkward social caste. And to understand India would take days to even go into that. But this caste that he was from was Hindu, but they would, his people were the ones that would like, they would move cows. Uh, from their part of Bihar down to Kolkata to be butchered by the Muslims. <laughs> if you know anything about Hinduism, like that is just forbidden, mm. uh, utterly forbidden. So they were doing the dirty work and they were working on behalf of the Muslims, which is even, even more forbidden and more dirty. So the whole thing is a mess. So Manan uh, was one of these guys, just kind of rough. You're kind of thinking... I'm sure in Australia, you guys have like just wild west rough people. And we, we do too in the U.S., just rough. And uh, so, but he had come to faith. We, again, I think it's important to know this guy, we did not lead him to faith. Someone had done that work in VR before us, had laid the foundation. He accepted Christ. His discipleship was almost entirely lacking, but his faith was there in Jesus. And so he comes in and he brought, you know, two or three with him. And this guy, uh, we trained their leaders, you know, we started off with basic evangelism. Again, Romans Road, just a go-to tool that we used, and we were using it, uh, four verses, and a really simple seven commands of Christ. There, It was all storying, all of it. Uh, they couldn't read. <laughs> uh, again, rough guys, right? When did they get a chance to get educated? They didn't, you know, too busy moving cows. So, Manan, uh, these guys really get turned on for sharing the gospel and making disciples. And they go back and they share a lot. And I don't have a number for you, Steve, but by the time we go back a month later, there's like 20 believers now. Uh -huh. um, and so 
so now they're beginning to baptize them. And we began to share, you know, train those and then have the, the first few who were still faithful to become the trainers of evangelism and disciple making. And then we spent, um, we were going in, mm, I'd say three days a month for six months and spending three solid days with these leaders. And then, so we were walking through disciple making and then church formation and helping them become leaders and raise up their own leaders from within. And as we did that, um, Munnan, you know, he's, uh, he's growing in his faith. He's leading others to grow in their faith. And now we're starting to see multiplication through generations. And, uh, within the first year, uh, there was a good percentage of his people that had heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. And I remember calculating it because remember, Steve, we went in thinking they were unengaged completely, meaning no gospel witness and unreached, meaning less than 2%. If there was gospel, there's nothing, right? Mm. So we were still using that 2% marker as a benchmark for what does it mean to be reached? And within the first year, we felt pretty confident that we were getting close to 2% of those people actually coming to faith in Jesus. They were so hungry for, mm. for belief. Uh, they, they were just, these people were down and out. I mean, the worst. And they were given hope. And they were given it by their own people, Munnan and his team. And mm. so they began to multiply pretty quickly the gospel. And so it went, in our estimation, like it's nothing's perfect with this, but it went from you know, very, very low percentage in the point zero something percent to the 2% range very quickly among a population segment of 250,000. Um, you know, and in some ways that looks like, wow, success, let's leave, let's move on, 2%, they're re- reached. <laughs> I, I used my air quotes in reach because that's pretty ambiguous. But uh, we kept we kept working and plugging away and helping them with their church formation and drawing gin maps and all the, all the other things, you know, that you would expect. Um, so that, that's Munnan. At the same time, I'll just offer this story too, because I think we stumbled upon something that we didn't intend, but ended up being a fruitful practice for us. We were bringing all of these unreached, unengaged peoples that had come to faith in Jesus into, uh, uh, the capital city there in Bihar, Putna. And they would come three days a month and go out. And the whole purpose with this was so that we could focus our energies on an entire state of unreached, unengaged, so that we weren't chasing. Remember, we had so much trouble in the previous context chasing all these leaders, and we just mm. went shallow. So we were trying to get them to come in. We would spend those days eating, sleeping, laughing, harvesting with them and mm. then they would go out and our, our focus was never the city our focus was always the unreached in the village okay so that was what we went in thinking we'll just train them equip them well as one does when you're training you go out in the harvest and you practice everything you're doing i forgot to say this steve um we started off with doing month-long trainings because if they were coming in we wanted to spend a month with them and really going deep. And so what that looks like is if you're walking through the four fields process, we would spend a week on in, a week on entry EV, a week on disciple making, church formation, leadership development. And so 
all the time, like half a day would be spent sort of together in a room, practicing tools, learning tools, practicing, and then we'd be out in the harvest. Well, the goal with this was we would start work in all of these unreached rural areas. But what happened was, and we weren't prepared for it and we failed, was uh, it, during their practice, uh, in that first month, they started 17 small churches in Putna in the first month because they were out faithfully sharing the gospel every day. And then they were taking people to the Ganges river and baptizing them. And then they were starting everything they would learn. They would go and do not all of them, but many of them. And so they started 17 small church starts and we were not prepared for even one. And so what happened was almost all, in fact, all but one basically dissipated into thin air. Once our people after the end of the month left right. and went back to their villages, mm. just caught us unaware. Mm. So that was, that was the first training cycle we did. We took a step back, we evaluated, and we're like, wow, we, mm. we imported laborers with the intention that they would reach their own people back home. But we imported laborers for a month in a, in a mega city in South Asia, and they saw fruit. Mm. Can we anticipate the spirits move again and make sure we have our act together this time so that whatever fruit is started in the city through just practice of faithfulness, whatever is started, can we then go nurture that fruit and make sure that that witness continues in the city as well as mm -hmm. transplants to the, to the homelands, right? And so round two, we got a little better. I think they started and main, they started more, but they maintained about five sort of home churches because we were intentional about training people within the city to follow up with the work and continue the work when the others went home. So we, we went through multiple iterations of this um, to try and hone it down to, can we target a mega city by bringing laborers from the outside? And can we then transplant the same DNA back to the unengaged groups across uh, a vast landscape. So I, I, I want to jump to, I'm going to call him Dalit. You, you and I know him. We talked about him earlier. Um, at the, so I was living in Delhi and I was going in and out of um, UP and Bihar at this point, uh, several days a month in both places. And then um, I just, the Lord began laying on my heart. There was, Again, looking at the UUPGs around Haryana and Delhi and Punjab, there were many. And so laying on my heart, how do we get to the same thing we're seeing, again, like a sandbox in Patna and in Varanasi and those places. How do we get to that and that sort of faithfulness in the Delhi area? And so uh, I began when my days that I was there and plus my family was growing and I needed to be home a little more. <laughs> so I actually went to my wife and said, look, we either need to pray about moving to Bihar or we need to pray that the Lord is going to open up more work here that can, that can multiply out. And so we just spent some, some weeks actually praying. And my, my wife, uh, through another missionary friend, my wife met a man, a pastor named Dalip. Uh, that's not his real name, but it's a good mm -hmm. name, Dalip. And Dalip, uh, she actually offered to do like a marriage training for Dalip and the women of his church. And that's how, that's how they met. And uh, then while they were meeting at that marriage training, uh, she just said, hey, my husband's looking for opportunities to train here closer to home. 
Uh, would you guys be interested in some evangelism discipleship training? Sure, we'll, we'll do that. So Dalip calls his leadership team together. Dalip, by the way, comes from a, a Jesus film background from crew. And so a lot of faithfulness in taking the gospel and the film into all these places. And those guys are the, they're a gym to any network because especially in contexts like Africa and India, because they know every evangelist and pastor because they've gone to every village and shown mm. the Jesus film. So they know everybody and they've been faithful to do this work. So he came from that background, had become independent, started a church, his church, he would say, you know, he wanted a mega church. Let's be honest. That was the model he saw. That's the model he wanted. And so he moved to this town where we were living, just out on the outskirts of, of Delhi, and planted his life. And he had seen about 40 people come to faith. He was doing good work, uh, raised up a leadership team. They had branched off once or twice and had cell groups going in a couple parts of the city. And uh, so we started training with him. And I casted heavy vision for him. I mean, really heavy vision uh, for the unreached and unengaged. Because uh, that was a filter for me. I wanted to know who was interested in sort of ends of the earth type work. I was happy to help train, happy to help evangelize and do whatever. Mm. But I really wanted to spend my time with those guys who wanted to go to the empty spots. And uh, so we talked through it multiple times. And then we decided that we would fast and pray together and see if the Lord was in this partnership. Like if the Lord was calling him to this, if the Lord was calling me to to unite with him in this, and um, and so we fasted for a week, I think it was, and prayed and just sought the face of Jesus, looking for uh, to see if this was the way to go. And and both of us at the end of that week decided, let's let's go for it. So we began to mm-hmm. identify the unreached, unengaged. The first thing I did was I took him to Patna, to Bihar to see what was going on in those groups saying, look, it doesn't have to look like this, but you should at least see what's going on and see if it's worthwhile. Then I took the main leaders that were in BR and brought them back to the Delhi area to help me with training and equipping and sort of bringing a hot coal back. And what does it look like to engage these unengaged? And so we started with this core team of, gosh, I can't remember exactly how many, uh, eight maybe that we just trained with, we equipped, we would go out into the harvest and share. We were intentionally focused on the unengaged. Then as they were networking, we did the same thing. We would bring those unengaged people in to the Delhi area. We started with two week or three week trainings, but the same rhythms. They would come in, they would be our laborers in the city, and then we would send them home to labor and we would follow up. So they came in and they were starting uh, with through Dalip's leadership uh, because he was a local leader and we were training his local leaders. They would start groups within the city and we would follow up with them. And many times they would find their own, at least language groups mm. around us, which was great. So we were breaking in to large parts of India based on being in the, the hub, right? And so, uh, so this is like Ephesian movement, right? So we're, we're, we're working in, we had this little, actually, we had a little training center. And, and in my mind, this is an Acts 19 Hall of Tyrannus. We'll call it the Hall of Delete. And so we would spend all of our, our time and energy in with those people, sending them out. And then the work began all around us uh, in these far-flung regions around us. And some of it was all the way across India, but a large part, we were focusing on Haryana, 
Punjab and uh, the Delhi, and there's some in Rajasthan as well, the, the upper part of Rajasthan, just to keep the spokes a little closer home, to home so that we could get on a train and visit these these spots when when the Lord opened. So with Dalip, it began to grow really quick. His leaders, not all of them, um, out of the eight or so, say four or five of them began to multiply very quickly. Um, and then uh, those guys would begin networking and training further out, and those began to multiply. And we were seeing small churches in many regions quickly. One brother, um, his name his name is actually David, but there's enough Davids, I'll just say his name, was uh, pretty unfaithful in the beginning in this inner circle. And uh, months go by, we're meeting regularly, we're doing disciple making, others are starting to multiply disciple makers, he's just doing nothing. Uh, and so I'm a little agitated, Dalip is agitated. And so we conspire and we sit down, we just have a word with him, you know, almost an ultimatum, like, listen, David, if this is, um, if the Lord's put this on your heart, let, let us help you. What's the problem? If not, let's empty this seat right here and we'll get someone else to, that wants our time and energy. You know, how do we, how do we fill the slot? This is months into it. And uh, he felt convicted at that conversation. He goes home and he's just praying all the way home. Like, Lord, I think you're in this. Show me a sign. Uh, I want to find an unreached, unengaged people or person today. <laughs> So, you know, I don't know why India is this way, but it is. Sometimes they're right next door to you and you just don't even know. This guy goes home, he's praying this, and he just takes a step across the street, you know, like a dirt street, across the village street into his, his like informal settlement and shares the gospel with a group of gypsies. Um, and several of them come to faith, like several of them. Uh, I want to say like in the... 30s come to faith uh, immediately. There are gypsy people in India. There's a thought that's yeah. where they originated. That's exactly right. That, uh, yeah, if you follow their lineage, they came from probably somewhere in southern India and have moved across the world. But so those people are still there and they still, gypsy camp is a gypsy camp. So he goes into an informal gypsy camp, shares the gospel. Uh, it, it, so 30 people come to faith. David, like really the first time he's won some of the faith. Uh, he is like me. He, he is a Baptist background believer. He grew up in a Baptist church that was totally dead, uh, no gospel, and got saved, and then now is sharing the gospel with gypsies. Well, day one, one of them, one of the gypsies says, seven kilometers down the road, there's another gypsy camp. We know all those. Can we go there? Uh, okay. David's unprepared. They get in a, you know, whatever transport seven kilometers down the road and like dozens more come to faith it happens three times in this first day mm -hmm. gypsy camp to gypsy camp to gypsy camp by this time it's evening and now they've got like uh i guess you know an evangelism movement if you will mm -hmm. in three camps in one day now remember this is the first time he's really shared the gospel turns out steve that he unbeknownst to david uh on our list of peoples was that specific gypsy group and their language, mm. meaning on our unreached and unengaged people group list were those people, right? He didn't know that. He just was praying and wanted to share the gospel and try his, you know, tip his, dip his toe in the water. And he begins this evangelism movement with one of our unengaged, unreached people groups. Okay, so it continues. Well, 
One of them was pregnant. And for some reason, she and the baby, she comes to faith in Jesus. I, I don't know this foul play. They received a lot of persecution from the outside, not because they came to faith in Jesus, but because uh, their faith in Jesus instantly convicted them to stop doing the gypsy tasks that they were doing, stealing cell phones, uh, pickpocketing. So they cut that out immediately. I don't know what it is. The spirit just was heavy on them. Well, they don't have any other, like they've been raised to like juggle and pickpocket. That's all they do. So the community relies on everyone pulling their weight and pickpocketing and stealing cell phones. What happens if in your community of 100, 30 of them stop doing that? Mm-hmm. Persecution happens. That's what happens. So they get persecuted because they're not pulling their weight economically. I mean, really bad persecuted, beaten, run out. One of them was a pregnant lady who actually died. I don't know. I don't know the whole story. Mm. The baby dies. She dies. Well, because it was a pregnant lady, the police get involved. (laughs) And gypsies in informal settlements, no one trusts the police in most of the world. But in this situation, no one trusts the police. They come in and the gypsies scattered, gone, all of them. Unbelievers, believers just disappear. Nothing but trash left behind. And so we lose contact with some of these guys for months when they resurface because they're, you know, afraid for their lives. What if they get taken in and accused for the death of this woman and the unborn child? This is bad news. Well, again, David is at the forefront of this movement. He he is not even (laughs) just becoming faithful himself. Well, we get news from UP, like hundreds of miles away, that these gypsies from this particular people group from this language dialect in Haryana, Haryan V speaking, have now transplanted for fear of their life to a gypsy camp in UP. They're in UP, and guess what happens, Steve? They share the gospel. And guess what happens? People come to faith, and then people start being baptized and discipled in those gypsy camps. And we look on our list in UP, guess who's on our unreached, unengaged people group list? Mm-hmm. That people group with their language. Same tribe different language groups. So we classified them as different uh, entities on our list. And so the gospel just begins to uncontrollably begin to spread from gypsy camp to gypsy camp in these two states that bordered each other. Um, so we that one was very difficult to track, very difficult to measure because the people is just so fluid. They go wherever they, you know, they're on the run all the time and wherever they can get opportunities. Um, they but. I will say this, uh, Dalip and his team uh, were doing their best to invest. And when I talked to him, it's been a while since we've talked about this one, um, but they still had some leaders from, I mean, they're raising up leaders, maturing them, helping them learn how to read because they, you know, who taught them how to read, never went to school. So they, they were helped um, with uh, literacy so that they could read the Bible and get jobs. That was the motive. Mm. Like, let's get these guys. They need the word of God, and they need to be able to support themselves. And so they they have an inner circle within these gypsy communities that are actually uh, raising up and, and being becoming strong leaders. I'm convinced that uh, Matthew 28 is for all of us, all who believe and profess Jesus as our Savior. Now, if Jesus gave that commission, surely, Steve, it wasn't a fool's errand. Did he give us the commission and not show us how to do it? 
like surely the savior of the universe would show us how to do it. So I'm convicted that we can go back and look through the gospels and say, how did Jesus do this? Right. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark three, right. He, he had this rhythm with disciples. He called them to be with him and to send them out and to proclaim the gospel. Right. So there's these rhythms of harvest and the way he trained and the way you see it, you know, Luke eight, nine and 10. So I'm convinced and I want to instill that in my family and me. I want that to be me and my kids, but it also needs to be any partner I leave behind. Don't look at this guy. Look at Jesus. Look at the word. Honestly, I just have a deep conviction. Um, it just sounds so corny when I, when I think through it, Steve, but I want to see the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the world as it covers the sea. Well, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the Movements podcast, why not leave us a review or spread the word on social media? I'm Steve Addison for the Movements podcast.